every entrepreneur has a story. Welcome to Happy Half Hour with an Entrepreneur, where each episode, your host, Brian Carney, will share a drink with a successful business owner and have them discuss their unique journey, gaining insight on what it takes to be an entrepreneur and different ways to get there. Brian isn't just a beer nerd, he's also the co-founder of River's Edge Advisors, a financial planning firm headquartered in Delaware, specializing in working with business owners. It's time to pour yourself a drink and enjoy a happy half hour with an entrepreneur. Hey everyone, welcome to Happy Half Hour with an Entrepreneur. I'm your host, Brian Carney. My host today is Doug Motley, who is the principal of JLAM, which is a real estate asset management firm. And prior to getting into the business, he started much like a lot of people in the great state of Delaware do at MBA um, and working in the banking world. He ultimately became a CFO for a real estate firm before uh, co founding his own private equity real estate firm. So, Doug, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brian. Great to be here. Great. So today I'm going to be trying a Two Roads Hazy Boy. For some reason, I've been really into drinking hazy IPAs lately. And Two Roads makes an awesome beer that I love called Lil Heaven. So I'm going to give this a try during the show. and We'll give it a rating at the end. What are, what are you going to be uh, okay. drinking? I'm with you. I'm uh, drinking Catboy's New Friend. It is from the Vale Brewery down in Richmond. Uh, oh, nice. Quality Excellent. spot. So this love is a it. Nice little IPA as well. I'm going to have to try that. I'm going to have to write that on my list. Yeah. All right, great. Well, let's let's jump right in. So tell us a little bit about your company. Sure. So uh, Jack Lingo Asset Management at JLAM um, is uh, a company I founded or co-founded uh, about 10 years ago with four partners. And we really founded the company to monetize on um, both for our investors and for ourselves on our ability to identify and capture uh, value in real estate. Um, and so, uh, you know, we, we anchor our investment strategies in a process um, where we identify macro themes. And then within these themes, we invest in or develop uh, properties that we feel are truly differentiated and really places where the end users will be proud to live or, or work as the case may be. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we leverage uh, our experience. We've, our team's been investing some for uh, as much as 40 years um, in the real estate space. And so we've got a lot of different uh, experience sets to, to um, tap into. And we leverage that experience to really see the differentiated attributes and properties um, really by understanding where we think demand is and what users really want. And then we make investments or, or develop and create places where we think they'll be proud to live or work and that the returns will ultimately follow um, if we pursue that strategy. Okay. So at this point, what percentage of your projects are commercial versus residential slash neighborhoods? So uh, right now we have three kind of active investment strategies. Uh, the first is the one we've been um active in since inception, which is, uh, which is in the for sale residential development space. So think of, uh, you know, two or 300 unit single family home community, that type of thing. And really what we're doing there is we're turning um, what we think is a, a special piece of property or land into an even uh, more unique community. Um, okay. And we that we really use that word um, with a lot of uh, import because that community feel, that community sense really between the people who end up living there is very important to us. 
and something we think about from the very beginning in, in how we're designing how a community may be laid out, what the components are of it, how lots are oriented towards each other, what the amenities may be, um, yeah. what its relationship is with the physical attributes of the property, like woods or a pond or hills, things like that. Right. So that's our first strategy. Our second strategy um, is multifamily uh, ground up development. So garden style apartments. Um, again, that taps into a lot of what I just described, but also layers in uh, some more social factors such as employment growth, population um, population growth, um, and really trying to provide um, here in coastal Sussex, the average home price has gotten pretty uh, pretty high, and that's not necessarily attainable for everybody who, who necessarily works around here. Sure. So we identified an opportunity to create high quality um, new uh, rental housing programs that, you know, where you're really paying attention to the details like nine foot ceilings, granite countertops, giving, you know, balconies, um, basically creating a place where someone can be proud to live and, and be comfortable having a new amenity package. And really that was an underserved segment of the market um, that we really started getting into about five years ago um, and have been building out that strategy since. And then the last one, uh, and this um, will probably draw some uh, some further discussion, but is uh, acquiring existing office properties. Okay. And that's something that we uh, kind of been working on for a long time, but really launched last year. Um, and that is, you know, really trying to target, uh, identify and target uh, unique and differentiated office buildings um, that, ex that are already existing. Um, and uh, in select target markets that we've been researching and investing in for, for about a decade. Um, but really, you know, taking advantage of the current market conditions and opportunities to uh, buy what we think are really compelling investments. That's great. So let me, I want to jump back to the communities thing real quick. How sure. much research do you guys put into an area and a, and a part of land before you ultimately decide to invest in that and then what you think that can become? Uh, a lot is probably an understatement. <laughs> so, so uh, you know, that's pretty a pretty um, broad question in that, you know, there's a whole lot of components that go into that. There's the market and submarket analysis. There's the actual physical property, walking the property, you know, making sure you understand what the physical features are of it, um, as well as uh, the actual development plans. Uh, and if we are involved in or solely responsible for creating them from inception, or if maybe in some cases we're buying something that's fully entitled and shovel ready and kind of already designed yeah. um, and understanding, you know, how that project was engineered and does it really fit, um, you know, our investment theme and, and goal of providing a differentiated and, and non-commodity type community. Yeah. Um, so it, it spans a, a pretty wide ranging space there. Um, but, right. <laughs> but there's a whole lot of, of details that we have to get into and pay attention to. No doubt. So it, uh, if you look at 10 pieces of land, how many of them do you actually move forward with? Less than one. Wow. Um, there's, there's probably an initial screen that's at this point um, partially subconscious. Uh, so, you know, the 10 that we look at, there's probably 30 that don't even kind of get into the bucket of we're looking at right. somebody put across make their desk. Yeah, right. They don't um, get to pass the first round. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so, you know, because our standards are high and our criteria is pretty high, our first screen clears the, clears the deck 
uh, pretty significantly. And it takes a property and the potential of a property to pass a pretty high standard to get ultimately to where we're, you know, moving forward and, and ultimately developing out of property. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. You ever run into, how, how often do you run into environmental issues where? Uh, it's generally rare, um, but we have, we've done um, one brownfield recently um, okay. and it ended up not being, uh, you know, terribly bad, but yeah, there are some useful programs um, through the state that help to, you know, are kind of, good for all in that help sure. clean up some existing environmental issues. But in all those cases, environmental is an, another big bucket where you can have kind of contamination environmental type things, but you can also have um, more of like wildlife and plant type environmental, it, not issues, but considerations. And, right. and they could even be just um, more of environmental as it relates to where wetlands are located or where a stream or Creek may be. Yep. And really what we try and think about is how do we turn that maybe constraint into an advantage Yeah, and, and use it, um, incorporate it and integrate it into our design to become a feature for the community that, you know, somebody else developing just a, a flat, um, uh, cornfield or something just doesn't have the advantage to, to use and, and leverage. So, yep. uh, we, we really try and, look at, uh, those, uh, situations as opportunities, not as, as problems. Uh, that makes sense. So let's, let's talk a little bit about your, your path to becoming an entrepreneur. So <laughs> we always make the joke here in Delaware that, uh, many people went to university of Delaware, graduate, and then they started bleeding green, as we say, uh, and working for MBNA. For those of you who don't know, sure. MBNA was a large bank that was uh, headquartered here in, in Delaware and was bought out by Bank of America. Uh, what would we say, Doug, 15 years ago? Is it? Yeah, it was 2006. Okay, perfect. See, you know. Um, so you started there. So how do you go from corporate banking world to starting a private equity fund and, you know, sort of making that leap to do that? Sure. So, uh, you know, I'll start with how I even got introduced to, to MBNA in the first place. And that was, um, I Delaware native, went to Dover High School, um, ended up going to University of Delaware in large part due to a scholarship that was provided by MBNA. Um, so they had, they had created a scholarship program for Delaware residents to go to Delaware state schools. Got and it. they had, they had other similar programs in other states that they were, um, you know, had a large corporate presence in like Maine. Um, sure. Anyway, so that got me to Delaware. As part of that scholarship, you were also um, offered, um, the potential to have an internship. Um, so I, I did that a couple summers um, and that ended up leading into um, a part-time job through throughout the, the school year when I was in college. And then going out of college, um, joined their management development program, which was a really cool experience. Uh, you know, it was 25, 30, um, mostly just graduating college folks. And so you're in a group of people that are all, you know, the same, um, very similar minded and same energy and, and all that. And, uh, and so we, uh, we probably embodied work hard, play hard uh, yeah. as much as we could. <laughs> um, so, you know, had a great experience, uh, there, um, you know, it's a one year long program rotating through a whole bunch of different, uh, departments in the bank, um, kind of most of the, the key ones that were there and then spun out into, I had a great experience at the bank who, through the next five or six years. So when the, uh, the Bank of America acquisition kind of happened, announced in 2005 and ultimately occurred in, in early 2006, 
um, you know, actually was was chatting with uh, a good friend of of mine, and and I think uh, yours as well, Sean. And uh, and we're actually in, at Scratch Magoo's uh, in, in Wilmington having this conversation. But uh, in my infinite wisdom as a 26 year old, yeah, I'm explaining to him how there's got to be more out there than credit card uh, banking. That's the only thing I've ever done. Right. <laughs> I think I want to try something else, but I don't know what that is. And so, you know, kind of talked about a lot of different things. And, and he mentioned that I've got a, I've got a, someone at the beach who I do a lot of work with, a uh, relatively young guy who's, you know, uh, involved in a lot of really interesting things on the real estate front. I think you should meet him. Don't know why you guys, I think probably have some common friends and would hit it off. And uh, as, as a person who grew up summering in Dewey beach for, you know, since I was two years old or something, right. uh, it didn't take a whole lot of arm twisting to, to get me to, to come down to the beach and, <laughs> and meet somebody. So Sean introduced me to Preston shell, um, who's been a very active developer, uh, in the real estate space down here for a while. And we hit it off. Um, I knew, um, the, my sole, uh, I guess, experience in real estate at that point was I had bought one house and probably did that very poorly. <laughs> uh, so my, my track record was not the reason why I ended up making the move, but, yeah. um, but Preston was, was great and took a leap of faith in, uh, in me and brought me on into his finance organization. And it was kind of a sink or swim set up. And fortunately for me, I jumped in head first and was able to swim. Amazing. And you know, shortly thereafter, kind of worked my way into the CFO role there. And that was really uh, kind of the impetus to going from a 30,000 person organization to a 20 or 30 person organization. Right. And really seeing how companies get started, just everything down to just the formation certificate of formation with the state of Delaware to right. organizational documents. And then all the way through, um, you know, the life, the life cycle of a, of a company. And that really kind of got the entrepreneurial bug flowing in me, so to speak. So I started my first company in 2009, uh, which was Rockford Capital, which was formed to uh, private equity real estate business formed to invest in um, distressed and undervalued commercial real estate in the mid-Atlantic and Southeast. And over the next handful of years, we've myself, along with three partners, sponsored and, and raised and then subsequently invested for private equity funds targeting those real estate properties in the mid-Atlantic and Southeast. And now we're kind of at the point where we're, uh, those funds are all fully invested and we're kind of harvest, harvesting those investments uh, most of the way through that. And we're kind yeah. of in the, the final stages of realizing the business plans for each of the, the remaining assets there. Wow. That's pretty crazy. So yeah. you go to work for a bank, you're out having drinks with your friend. Your friend says, I don't know why you should meet this guy, but you should. And that literally changed the trajectory of your life. Absolutely. Great and summary. That, that's kind of crazy to, when you think about it, you know, yeah. th to have that happen, especially when you're 26, you know, obviously yeah. you never know when, when it's going to, when it's going to change or what's going to happen For but sure. to be able to have that, that happen. That is amazing. Yeah. I, life is a, uh, an interesting sequence of, of meeting people and interacting with people and, and creating and having opportunities happen and um, trying to take advantage of them when you can. I, I love that Sean said, uh, you should meet this guy. I don't know why, but I think you should. <laughs> I've said that multiple times in my life. And, and yeah. a lot of the times it, it, it ends up being true and, and trusting your gut on that is kind of interesting. Sure. Yeah. A lot of good things happen. Uh, following that comment. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a great point. That's a great point. So then you, so then you have a second company that uh, talk about Broadpoint a little bit. Sure. So shortly after forming Rockford, um, 
had an opportunity through uh, another lifelong friend um, who's an engineer by trade where we saw um, myself uh, and these two other partners saw an opportunity where in the, the Southern Delaware market, we felt there was a gap in um, professionally managed commercial general contractors that really put client experience, customer experience coming from MBNA customers you know, <laughs> top of the pile, really putting that um, uh, at the, at the forefront of their corporate priorities. And, and so, um, my role in, in that was really, uh, investing in and kind of playing almost a board member type role of opening doors for new business relationships and, um, providing some finance oriented guidance to our operating partner there. Um, and really over the next, I don't know, eight or 10 years, that company grew from, um, a, a pretty small investment and a pretty small first year of revenue to, you know, more than $10 million of revenue. And, Holy crap. uh, my, uh, my partner, Nick and I, um, exited that investment a little, uh, over a year ago, um, through a transaction to our operating partner. So it was kind of a, uh, a really great example of finding a good idea, putting a little bit of money against it and a lot of sweat. And, uh, if you're in the right space, you know, it can really pay off. So you're, so you're, you're investing in distressed commercial pro projects and you look around and you go, nobody's really fixing these up in a really strong way. So you guys decide to create a business that actually would help fix up some of the distressed properties. Yeah. It wasn't really stuff that we were owning, okay. um, but it was more of when we would actually hire somebody to, when we were in situations where we needed to hire a contractor to do some work the experience we had was lackluster. Sure. And so we said, there's gotta be a better way to do this. Um, and why shouldn't it be us? Yeah. That, I mean, that's, that's amazing to be able to, that's true entrepreneurship is you, you, you start one business and then another one is born because of your experience. You know, a, a lot of times you have a certain customer service experience and go, okay, well that, that needs to be fixed. And I think we can figure out a way to do it better. Mm-hmm. So would you say that you always wanted to be an entrepreneur or did you think when you signed on at MBA that you were going to be a lifer there? I, I was certain I was going to be a lifer there. <laughs> and, you know, I think, I think, you know, the climate of now versus 20 years ago, it's also hard to believe it's 20 years ago, but yeah. um, the, just the economy and mindset of most people is, you know, the, the lifer type scenario is not the default. And I yeah. think then it was the default, maybe starting to, to migrate away from that. But um, really the difference for me was, to me, MBNA had a, a very entrepreneurial environment. Um, there was uh, a very clear path for me to senior leadership. And then when the Bank of America transition happened, it was just a very different culture that prioritized yeah. different things. And you know, just going from a 30,000 person organization to a 200,000 person organization, yeah. it was just night and day and very different. So. Um, Fortunately, that kind of caused me to, to come up for air and look around for, for other things and uh, great things ensued. Well, it's kind of interesting because it, it, when you look at the culture that was at MBNA, that was a real sense of community. You know, like you said, you, you, you worked hard, you partied hard work, you know, you played hard with, with the people that you worked with. But, you know, the sense of community internally, most people have very positive things to say about MBNA and their time there. And then you know, that sort of translates your, your, your focus on customer service and making the customer happy now translates over to building communities and having the customer service experience that you want those people that are going to be 
buying a house in one of your communities. It's kind of interesting how that all sort of permeates throughout your life. Sure. There, there are a lot of uh, concepts and, and themes and priorities from the things that were ingrained in me uh, back in, in uh, the MBA days that, that still continue to this day. That's awesome. I, I love it. So you personally, what is your actual role? So what do you do every day? Sure. So I'm responsible for uh, investment research. So kind of what's going on in the investment climate as it relates to real estate. Yeah. Uh, and then developing investment strategies around the outcome of that research. So, all right. So we think there X, Y, Z is going to happen. What's the best way to get exposure to that? And then, okay, now that we have these strategies defined, let's go find the deals that fit within those strategies and yep. analyzing those deals and in, in the acquisition side. And then the last piece of that is kind of the, the capitalization of those, those investments and the relationships with both our equity investors as well as our, our lenders. So okay. basically the front end, what are we gonna do? And then specifically what deals are we gonna do? And then how are we gonna capitalize it? Make that makes sense. So what do you, do you prefer working on the community slash residential neighborhoods or do you like the office uh, commercial side better? There are pros and cons to both. I mean, I guess like, you know, like anything in life, yeah. but, and I think they're both really exciting, but just in different ways. Um, yeah. And it kind of goes to a little bit of the, what I love about my job is the the blending of science and art. I think right. by default, I'm much more uh, analytically oriented, but yeah. the art aspect of real estate and how that ties into the anal analysis side of things really makes things interesting. So on the commercial side, there's the, you know, pure number dollars and cents. You're looking at an income stream, you're valuing that income stream and saying, okay, you know, what's the probability that it's still there five years from now. And, and it's a math problem. Up. Exactly. Yeah. However, where the really thing, the really, the art comes into it is you can have two of the exact same income streams um, with the exact same tenants and the exact same credit everything's the exact same, except for you walk into one building and you're like, wow, there's a lot of light here. You know, this is a really neat architectural space. Oh, by the way, there's a Starbucks and some cool walking trails right next door. Yeah. Or you walk into the same exact income stream again, and you walk into an 80s brick building that's got eight <laughs> and a half foot ceilings that are, you know, drywall and FRP. And yeah. it's the last place you would ever want to show up every day. Right. And so that's where the art really comes in is, is trying to figure out, you know, what is it that tenants want to pay for? Where is it that people are excited to, or more uplifted to go to work? And therefore the benefits to the tenants are their employees show up, their employees keep showing up, they get better labor that, you know, people want to work there. And there's a whole lot of kind of second, third order things that you can think about that can really differentiate two things that look dollars and cents wise or numbers wise, very similar. Yeah. Uh, and that's really, you know, the exciting part about the commercial side on the residential side, uh, especially in development, it's a different animal where you're starting. And a lot of times with a clean slate and trying to figure out, okay, here's where, what our market analysis is saying, here's where, you know, we think the unmet demand is in terms of people looking for a $500,000 house or a million dollar house. Now, how do we start to design that on this piece of property? Oh, and does this piece of property have any really interesting physical attributes that are right. just there by nature that we can incorporate? And then what are the built environment kind of things from an amenity standpoint that we can incorporate? Are you able to integrate those two things in some way, like having a, 
you know, building a bridge over a creek or something like that, right. or walking trails, just things that are going to be differentiating about a, a property or a community where when somebody drives through, look, there's a lot of different choices out there for all these things we're talking about. And whether it's a family going to buy their first home or a tenant looking for 5,000 square feet of space, you're going to look, likely going to look at more than one option. Right. And we want to be the one that you may not remember the name of our project or our office building, but we're the one that has that wow factor, that one thing where you're like sitting around the dinner table. Oh, remember that one place that had the cabanas that were by the pool? That was really cool. Yeah. But you that's, know, that's the kind of thing that we're trying to strive for. That, that makes a bunch of sense, you know, to be able to have that. You always say when you're looking at real estate, you kind of walk into a place, you go, all right, this is the one. You know, it's sort of yeah. like picking a college. You go to a college and you look at a bunch and you finally settle on, you go, I, I could see myself here. It's the same yeah. deal when you buy a house. And you may not be able to articulate exactly why, but you know it when you see it. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> yep, that's a great That's a great way to put it. So yeah. uh, your industry probably next to travel, hotels, restaurants was affected likely the most by the pandemic, you know, people stopped working at their offices. I'm currently in my basement here at your house. So um, talk a little bit about the impact that the pandemic had on you in particular, and then we'll kind of talk about what you, what you see moving forward. Uh, sure. So professionally at our four rent, so our multifamily projects and our for sale communities, March and April of last year were came to a grinding halt. You know, it right. was a goose egg for everything. Yeah. Um, for, fortunately, in the state of Delaware, all of our contractors and everybody were able to continue working. So there was minimal disruption to progress for things that were being built, whether that's, right. you know, putting pipes in the ground or, or, you know, putting trusses on a building. Yeah. However, in terms of new sales and new leases, it all stopped. Interestingly, you know, in May, things started to open back up. People started to move around a little bit more and we really started to see things come back. And shortly thereafter, they had far surpassed the kind of trajectory where we were pre-pandemic. <laughs> yeah. And it's been on that side of the business, it's been guns blazing for the past year. Inventory is unbelievably low. There are some other things going on on the cost side of the business, but in terms of top line, it's been way better than expectations. Yeah. On the office side, you know, it's interesting. I was reading a survey the other day and, and it compared, you know, they interviewed a group of CEOs in last August and then they interviewed the same group uh, in March. And they said, what's your expectation for what your business's real estate footprint is going to be? In August, last August, they 67% of them said uh, they're definitely going to shrink their footprint. That number's mm -hmm. down to 17% oh, wow. two months ago. That's crazy. And so it is. And, you know, one of the things we were talking about before was the impact of work from home on, on office. And yes, that's a headline grabber. Um, yes, it will have some impact on the amount of office used, but yeah. probably more so how office is used, I think. And look, there's, in our opinion, there's a lot of pushes and pulls here. There's a couple things on the headline side that, you know, that every, a lot of people pay attention to, but there's, there are a lot of currents that are impacting this, such as um, I'll just hit on a couple and we've done a lot of research on this and kind of put together a, a full research brief on it. But, you know, we see the need for office not going away largely because of collaboration, education and kind of learning from from others and your coworkers and learning by osmosis of the, the guy in the, the office next door or the cube next door. Sure. And hearing how they're dealing with things. Culture, and then product, for sure. Yeah. Culture, absolutely. Um, and productivity. And 
productivity is a really interesting one for me. You know, there was some early, early research in the, probably the first quarter or two of the pandemic showing that productivity in some measures was up. However, everything else was closed. Right. There was nothing else to do. There's nothing else to do except work. Why not? I'm sitting in front right. of my TV watching my 15th hour of COVID coverage. So why don't yeah, I yeah. just check my emails? Sure. So as, as other options, you know, whether that's gyms or, you know, recreational things or bars and restaurants or whatever it may be, as those other things become available and you can go down to the cafe at 2 PM to have a cup of coffee while you sit on the sidewalk and watch people instead of doing the work that you were doing, you know, early on in the pandemic, I think that, you know, that equation changes a bit. So you've got, you've got those elements which are at play. You also have the fact that, you know, we've seen uh, a densification of, of office space over the past decade or so where employers have been putting more people in less space um, and really driving down their occupancy costs. Mm -hmm. We believe that there's going to be a reversion of that trend towards the mean or towards the average. And you'll start to see more space per employee or, you know, for every hundred people that an employer is going to have, they're going to need more space. They want them spread out a little bit more and the use of their space is going to be more collaborative in nature. So it may not be, you know, a line of cubes that are two and a half feet apart anymore. It's now, you know, a larger room or a group of huddle rooms, things like that. And just the, the way space is used will be different, but we don't really see demand falling off a cliff. Yeah. All those things are kind of painting it with a really broad brush. Sure. Now we're, we're not looking to invest a hundred billion dollars into the office sector and kind of getting the, you know, the beta or the, the S&P kind of returns, if you will. We're looking to be very surgical in what we do. We're picking the very best opportunities that we see within a certain segment of what is a very big market. So yeah. kind of skimming the cream of the cream of the cream is kind of our strategy of, of finding those differentiated assets that you know may look on paper from a return standpoint, just like the commoditized opportunity. But it's got inherent differentiating characteristics about it that will really in the long run lead to better returns. Absolutely. And I, I think you guys are, have done a great job. You know, if you look at what you're investing in and what you're offering, just being diversified on the one hand, you have commercial real estate on the second, you have these residential homes and not only are residential homes, you know, going for crazy prices right now, but you're, a lot of your houses are in the, in a vacation area or a potential mm -hmm. second home area. And even second homes have gone gangbusters because people sit around, and they go, well, now I can work from home. I can work from anywhere. I can work sure. Thursday. I can work Wednesday through Sunday sitting in my beach house. Sure. So I think you guys have done an excellent job when you look at how you've built the company and, and how you, how you've invested. It's, it's really panned out well, kind of perfectly during this whole pandemic. Yeah. So, um, you know, as I was talking a little bit about before, our team is, is really unique in the diversity of experience sets. And because we have experience in both the development business as well as the acquisitions business and across um, a lot of different asset classes or property types and through a number of different economic or real estate cycles, you know, that really positions us well to say, hey, you know, the market's moving from A to B let's get to B before the market does, or the yeah. herd is going that way. Let's look the other direction and see what's over there. And we're positioned to actually execute on that. And that really opens our ability to go after the most compelling opportunities in the real estate space and really let the market drive where we're investing. 
that allows you to be completely tactical and strategic as opposed to, you know, getting whipsawed and trying to follow the the herd. Sure. Yeah. yeah that's great. So you, you have a couple business partners, you know, I and I have, I have a business partner, so there are highs and lows. It's sort of like any other relationship or marriage, if you will, mm-hmm. positives to having business partners and negatives that you would say for someone that's looking to start a business and, and, and will be working with a partner. I would say maybe tips first instead of positives and, and negatives, but <laughs> I like tips, it. tips would be think long and hard. Cause you're getting married to this person. You're not going on a date with them. Yeah. <laughs> and you, you know, you've um, you get to know them and you probably spend more time with them than your spouse. And yeah. so you can probably finish their sentences better, you know, et cetera. So, you know, think long and hard and, and make sure that it's the right person uh, across a number of different dynamics. So pros, I'd say, I think it's fantastic to have differing opinions to counter yours or to just provoke additional thought and different yeah. viewpoints, things that you may not think about. And in our business, you know, avoiding mistakes is, is absolutely critical. So, you know, having people with different but complementary experience sets really adds a lot of value. And so I think that's good. If you have a bunch of people all from a whole bunch of second basemen, then it's hard to field a team. Yep. So I think that that's, that's really important. Clearly defining roles and responsibilities is important. And then I think really thinking through the, the risk reward of how your partnership may be set up is really important. Yeah. So, yeah, I think you can, you need to make sure that risk is balanced relative to reward for each of the parties that are, that are involved. Um, an imbalance there, I think, can lead to potential problems down the line. Yep. You think you bring up a good point about being able to not have all second basemen and have someone that thinks completely differently than you and be open to what they have to say. Like, oh, you know what? I never would have ever considered that, but that's a really good point. Yeah. I think that awareness of maybe your preconceptions or, or biases or tilts is really important. And being able to keep that open mind perspective to really understand and listen and, and get the perspective that may be different than yours that the other person is conveying and trying to understand, you know, why they're saying that and almost playing devil's advocate and saying, okay, this is my deal. I'm the, I'm the champion of it, but I'm going to sit on the other side of the table, be the red team, so to speak, and try and poke as many holes in it as I can and make the other person defend it. And we'll see, you know, we may find something that we otherwise weren't thinking about. No, that's a great, that really is a good point. So if, tell us a little bit about, I know you do a lot of work with the Boys and Girls Club of Delaware. Tell us a little bit about, you know, your, your community service work. That's sure. So um, actually got introduced to the Boys and Girls Club through a, a great mentor of mine at MBNA um, who had been involved in, in the club uh, at the state level for a long time. And uh, when I moved down to the beach in, in early 06, got more involved uh, specifically with the, the Railway Beach Club which was going through some financial challenges and a couple of us got together and kind of decided, Hey, there's a way we can create a really interesting or really fun event that will raise a lot of money for specifically the the boys and girls club uh, in Rehoboth. So we started, I think, let's see, I guess it was maybe 2009, 2010, something like that. So a couple of years may have have passed there, but we started what's become the Irish eyes uh, open presented by Jay lamb for, uh, for the benefit of the Rehoboth Beach Boys and Girls Club. And over the past 
eight or nine years um, we've raised. And I think this year we're shooting to surpass a million dollars for the club. Amazing. And so it's, it's pretty amazing, but really, you. you know, what the, the whole, the whole thing is, is it's really for the kids that really benefit from this program and it's the, all the different programs that the, the club offers all the clubs across the state. And, you know, it's been a very challenging year and a half for, for both the kids as well as the, the staff across the organization, you know, they didn't get to work from home for 18 months. You know, they were yeah. going up every day, putting, you know, on the front lines and really helping to try and help and support these kids who really need it. And the role that the clubs played over the past year and a half really changed into being much more of an all day enterprise, almost like a school rather than just an after school and before school type function. So anyway, uh, it's a great organization, been involved here in the Rehoboth area for, for a long time. And, and kind of all of our companies over time have, have done a lot to try and support where we can, both in terms of, of resources and, and effort. That's amazing. Well, well done by you guys. Thanks. Yeah, one of the things I was thinking as you were talking, there's this, for, for those who don't know, there's this, I guess, stereotype about lower Delaware that it's, they call it referred to slower, lower. And it's sort of the same thing where in Pennsylvania, they call the area between Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So it has this negative connotation that the, that lower Delaware, once you get below a certain point is very rural, almost backwoods, if you will. But a lot of the work that you, you guys are doing is really changing that stereotype and making it a desirable place to come, not only as a second home, but as a primary residence. So how, how, how do you think that's, that's helped and, and that sort of stereotype? How do you think you guys are really working to kind of shatter that? So I guess there's two prongs to that answer. The first is on the development side here locally, you know, all of my partners and I all have longstanding roots to the area and right. in some cases, you know, a couple hundred years, kind of yeah. the, the first, <laughs> right. first couple people, but I don't think any of us are planning on going anywhere anytime soon. And so, you know, we all live here and we think we take it very seriously that the projects we develop, we want to be accretive to the community in the area. And so, whether it's a commercial project we're doing here locally, a development project, and we're like, how do we create something that's cool and that I would be excited about going to and being a patron of and, and going there and hanging out or just the experience I get, or whether it's a community and, and how do I design something that either my friends or you know people I know or, or people I care about would be excited about going to and be proud to call their home. We spend a lot of time thinking about that stuff. And yeah. And I think that's what also differentiates us from from some of our competitors and in, in the alternatives is part of that stereotype or, or slogan is enables us to run circles around people who maybe, you know, aren't as rigorous as, as we are in the things that we do. Yeah. Um, so I guess that's one one side of things is, you know, we take it on ourselves to make this area a better place to live. Amazing. Um, a better place to work. Yeah. And then the other side of that is more a broader perspective from the company and some of our investing activities outside of the area because you know we invest from pennsylvania down to south carolina and the opportunity to create jobs here that are maybe jobs that historically haven't been found here and yeah that's a great um, point and that's something that's one of the most rewarding things i've found about just my whole journey of entrepreneurship or, or you know being a business owner is and that's probably what I'm most proud of is the opportunity to, or 
being able to offer opportunities for just really great people to have a rewarding professional career yeah. um, with, with opportunities to progress, make a good living and really enjoy what they do. Yeah. And all the things that I enjoy about my day-to-day job and, and career or all the things that I've liked about different roles in the past, I'm, I'm passionate about being able to provide that to as many people as I can kind of, you know, who, who work within our organization and supporting, you know, the things that we're trying to achieve. That's amazing. That's a great answer. Yeah. I love that. That's uh, an unbelievable thing to be proud of. So that's good for you. That's awesome. Thanks. Well, I, this is great. I, I really appreciated your time today. I really enjoyed sure. it. Um, so if you'd like to learn a little bit more about Doug and his company, go to jacklingoam.com. We first have to, I have to rate this beer. So we got our first bit of hate mail, I guess, if you want to say about a beer that I rated, a dogfish head beer I rated. It was actually also a hazy. And as I reflected on it, I've had it a couple of times since, and I would give it a higher rating, but this one, I do like two roads a lot. So I'm going to give this a 3.75 out of, out of five, which means I would definitely drink it again. So how, uh, did you enjoy yours? I did. Um, the Vale is, is probably one of my, well, definitely one of my favorite breweries around. It's in a really cool neighborhood called Scott's Edition down in Richmond. Um, would absolutely recommend going to check it out, but they, they put out some unbelievable beer. So, uh, I'd probably go four or five on this one. It's, it's fantastic. Love it. They're going to love that too. That's great. Well, thanks again for your time. If you want to connect with me on untapped, my username is brcarney seven. And to learn more about how our firm helps business owners with their financial planning, visit riversedgeadvisors.com. And finally, to hear past episodes of the podcast, go to happy-half-hour.com. Doug, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Cheers to you. Thanks a lot, Brian. Good to see you. Thank you for listening to Happy Half Hour with an Entrepreneur, sponsored by Rivers Edge Advisors. For more information on how Rivers Edge Advisors can help you, visit their website at riversedgeadvisors.com. If you'd like to connect with Brian Carney for business advice or just to share a beer, follow him on Instagram at riversedgeadvisors underscore LLC.